Once again, a very special welcome to you if you're visiting Canterbury Gardens. It's a great joy to have you here with us. My name is Shabir. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we welcome people who are particularly on the journey of exploring the Christian faith, or maybe you're looking for a new church home, uh, or you are skeptical or apathetic to it all. Uh, either way, we pray that you'll continue to hear about this Jesus that we love as a church. Uh, and we want to. Um, uh, Ask that you would ask the questions that you have, the doubts you might have, uh, wherever you're at, that God will continue to reveal himself to you. Uh, And this is the time in our service where we pause and and we kind of unpack some passages from the Bible. Uh, We as a church have been exploring uh, the the book of Judges. We've been particularly looking at uh, some specific characters from the book of Judges. The book of Judges is in the Old Testament. Uh, If you have a Bible, if you could turn to Judges chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at Judges 8 and chapter 9. So there's quite a bit of ground we will try to cover this morning. Um, Now, Judges is a confronting book of the Bible. It's pretty dark, but throughout it, we're going to keep on seeing how God is very gracious with his people, and particularly people who keep on dropping the ball. And this morning, uh, we come back to our friend Gideon. Uh, we as a church have been exploring Gideon the last couple of weeks. Uh, Gideon we've met. Uh, he's a f- sort of a timid guy to start off with. He's pretty fearful. Uh, he's not really wanting to take on the task that God is calling him to, mainly because he's not sure if God is with him. And God continuously is patient with him, continues showing him and even accommodating for his requests to show that God is with him. And despite of Gideon being timid and unsure and quite fearful, it seems, Gideon is still faithful, he's still obedient to the call that's been given to him, and he keeps moving forward. And last time we met Gideon, uh, he's about to fight the Midianites, the, the great army. There's quite a numerous number of them, and God calls uh, him to go and battle with them. And then God's strategy and plan is simply this, to downsize the whole army to 300 people. So Gideon goes in with no weapons, nothing, but lots of yelling and pots being broken. uh, And God gives victory. It's God who wins. And the big story constantly and throughout Judges, you'll see that God is in control. He never leaves his people. That God is the one who already gives victory. And as the story of the Bible continues, as we've been exploring in Jesus, we know this, that when we give our lives and faith to him, we do have victory. Because Christ has won victory over sin and death. And if you know Jesus, the promise is that he'll never leave you or forsake you. And if you don't know him, our greatest desire for you is to explore these truths. Test them out. Is Jesus real? Is he made up? Is, is it true? The Bible and the story is in here. We would welcome those questions. And we pray that you would encounter him. This morning, uh, there's going to be quite a bit to cover, and my hope and, I guess, to to highlight some of the things from the two passages in chapter 8 and chapter 9. We're going to be considering what does it mean to to be deceived by power, and secondly, we're going to be looking at the reality of evil and the short timeline that evil has. So, in the storyline, Gideon has just beaten the armies of the Midianites with God's help. God has given him victory with the 300 men. And so, he's heading in to finish the job, it seems. That's what it looks like on the surface, at least. But now, what we're seeing in chapter A is, is the unraveling of what I would say a fairly good hero. 
But we start seeing the unraveling of this hero in chapter 8. So if you have uh, Judges chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 1. Then the man of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when we went went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizir? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he had said this. Verse 4, And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and 300 men who were with him exhausted and yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sokoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted and pursuing after Zephyr and Zulumna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sokoth said, Are the hands of Zephyr and Zulumna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zephyr and Zulumna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. From there he, he, he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. The men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sokoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you the throne of grace this morning. We pause our hearts and minds and will as we continue this time of worship. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us wherever we are at this morning, that you would make these words in your word come alive through your spirit. And Lord, as we've sung, let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth, even now, for your glory, for your son's fame. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so Gideon has won the battle. That's what we've picked up in the storyline so far, right? In the previous chapters. God has given victory by using 300 men. And there's a certain tribe that are a bit annoyed that Gideon has not included them in their victory. Now, this is the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim is a tribe that's saying, hey, Gideon, hold up here. We're not happy. You haven't asked us. You've not included us in this battle, and that means we're not going to get the fame and glory that you're getting, and you're 300 men. We feel a bit ripped off. We're a bit snubbed by this. And they are so, the language in it is to say they're so angry and annoyed at him, uh, they have a go at him. See, um, the big storyline of Judges is constantly this picture, and throughout the Old Testament in particular, there's, there's actually at the moment in the history of Israel, there's disunity. Tribes are in some sense against each other. And this rivalry between this particular tribe of Ephraim and Manash have been there for a long time. Uh, It's been there since the story of Joseph. If you go back, you'll start seeing this long history. It's kind of like, you know, Victoria and New South Wales. As Victorians and Melbournians, we believe that we're the greatest city in the whole of Australia, or maybe the whole world. Yes? No? Okay. There must be some New South Wales people here. Apparently, they've got this really cool bridge thing. I don't know what it is. Anyway. Now, slight silly illustration. Very silly illustration. This included war and anger and frustration. But at the heart of it, what this tribe is saying is, hey, we want the glory. We're not happy that our rival tribe seems stronger than us. It has nothing to do with giving glory to God who had actually given them victory. 
pride is driving their reason why they want this glory. And Gideon, from a man who's been hiding away, is now starting to step as a leader. And he interacts with them and recounts to them, hey, listen, you've actually got already victory, haven't you? And they calm down. In some sense, I think he's feeding their pride. You've done this. Look what you've done. There's the Lord and all these kind of language. And Gideon is doing well and engaging. But then Gideon is now, his, his story starts shifting very slightly. The author starts kind of honing into some key things, which hopefully we'll see. So Gideon is now moving forward. He crosses across the Jordan. And he starts to pursue some enemies. Now, on the surface, it seems, okay, well, he's kind of finishing off the job, isn't he? He's pursuing it specifically, though, and those names are repeated. If you're not, I'm not sure if you picked that up. The names of the two kings are repeated. So he's chasing after them. And so for his purposes, he's going. His 300 men are exhausted. They've been in battle constantly. Uh, and they are tired and they approach some towns and they ask them, hey, can you help us? Can you feed our men? And the response is, hey, we're not going to help you out. And their reason for not helping out is simply that, hey, listen, Gideon, look, the victory hasn't been given to you, so why should we help you out? We're not sure because, you know, if you fail now, guess what? The army's going to come back. Those two kings are going to come back and destroy us. In some sense, they're protecting themselves. And something stirs up in Gideon. He's very angry. He's frustrated. And he comments to them, When the Lord has given the two kings into my hands, I'll come back and rip your flesh apart with the bushes and thorns. Now, these are confronting words. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to reap havoc onto you. I'm going to bring discipline to you. It's, it's full on. It's confronting picture. There's a sense that Gideon is now starting not to feel supported. Uh, people are not looking to him. Uh, but there are the 300 that he's with, and, and he, he, he's no longer this timid person, or he's now kind of stepping out. And I, I think the author is slightly starting to say he's starting to look maybe like a king in that his way that he's kind of carrying himself. There's a confidence there. So Gideon presses on. He chases after the two kings. He gets the two kings. And he returns. And as he returns, there's this justice that needs to be done. He's angry with those other officials. So he grabs them. He finds out who they are. He writes a list. He gets a list of them. There's 77 of the elders of the town. People who refuse to give him refuge and rest. And in verse 16, it says, They taught them a lesson. Confronting words to say, Gideon gave them exactly what he said. It's confronting for us on purpose. I'm not sure if you'll read this to your kids at bedtime. But the Bible is raw and real, and I love that about it. So Gideon, I think, personally, is starting to unravel. He's starting to unravel as a, a kind of a prominent, strong leader and a judge. And this man who no longer looks scared anymore, he's not timid anymore, he's courageous, and he's, but he's, he's starting to enforce the law. But see, here's the thing though, one of the confronting things in this passage, it seems that as he steps out and he, he, he returns, like he said, and he's defeated the two kings, uh, he actually says, I will tear down your tower. And he does come back to do that. 
But he also goes a little bit further, it seems. In verse 17, it says that he actually ends up killing the men of the city. There's this power that enrages him and consumes him. It brings both discipline and he ends up killing them. And the question, when the Bible puts these kind of details in, you've got to ask the question, well, why, why, why is Gideon doing this? Why don't he just stop at discipline? Why, why did he even go further? What's driving all of this all of a sudden? And then you have these comments in verse 18. So if you look at Judges 8, 18 to 19. Then he said to Zeba and Zuluma, Where are the men whom you killed at table? This is talking to the kings. They said, They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my daughters. As the Lord lives, you have saved them alive. If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Something is driving Gideon to chase after the two kings. Now remember, the last mention of who God is and what and the interaction with God is in verse 7. Uh, now it seems as the storyline unravels in Judges 8 and then it carries on to Judges 9, the mention of God and interaction with God is not as much. He is chasing after these two kings and there's a reason why he's chasing after them, why he's pursuing them to the point of getting his men so tired and it's revealed there's vengeance on his heart there's vengeance on his mind I think to me as I kind of unpack this Gideon this guy I really started to like we're starting to see the unraveling of a judge an unraveling of a valiant man I mean it's like a camera on Gideon in this moment and the, those kings are caught and Gideon's response is that he wants his firstborn to kill these kings. And the firstborn's response, he's afraid. And it's this epic movie scene where you have the kings now taunting Gideon. But notice what they say. They say, as the man is, so is his strength. In other words, Gideon, you strike us. You strike us because if you are a man, a man is judged by his strength. If you want to use kind of Aussie language, what are you, mate? Are you a chicken? Don't send us your son to kill us. Aren't you man enough? You do it yourself. In this moment, there's this question that's thrown back at Gideon, and he does respond. He's like saying, Gideon, if you're man enough, If your strength is really yours, you kill us. Don't send your son to kill us. Show us your strength. And our friends, and I think in this moment, we're starting to see the unraveling of Gideon. In this moment, we're seeing the unraveling of a valiant man because I think it's really sad and it's confronting. This is the deception of power. When power comes into your hands, this is the deception unraveling of power that is shown. Let me ask you a question as we see and study Gideon's life. Where does Gideon's strength come from? Is it from himself? Who has given him the victory? Is it his strength? I mean, even the question of Gideon asking his firstborn to respond and kill, what's going on there? This is the deception of power. This is what happens when you kind of see power coming from yourself. 
and seeing that the victory that Gideon got was from God. Vengeance has caught his heart and revenge is on his mind and he takes it into his own hands. In other words, he wants to show them who's boss, whose strength, who's got real strength, that's him. In other words, there's a temptation even for you and I in those moments where we think strength comes from us. We think we're doing it in our own strength. I'll show them. I'll show them what I can do. I'll knock them for a six. And we think that strength comes from us. Friends, strength doesn't come from us. Good strength, godly strength comes from God above. And then now we start seeing in these verses following on, verses 22 onwards, it's like a sad storyline of an unraveling of a hero and a valiant man. In verse 22, we see, as Gideon says, The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, your grandson also, for you've saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you, every one of you. Give me the earrings from the spoil. For they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. They answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings and the requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of the Midian besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city of Ophrah. And all Israel hoard after it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the day of Gideon. It's a sad unraveling what we have in front of us. It's very raw and very real. In this moment, the, the, the people of Israel say, hey, we, you're acting like a king. You're, you're creating vengeance. All these things are going on. Now, well, why don't you be king over us? We want you to be king over us. And it sounds all wonderful on the surface. But Gideon's response is, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And it sounds wonderful, doesn't it, in the sight of things. that God is sort of acknowledged now by Gideon. Gideon is giving the, the acknowledgement to God for the victory. But in those moments, you've got to ask what's going on in Gideon's heart. It's all, in a sense, lip service is what we're using in our day and language. I mean, it'd be wonderful if in those moments when the, when the people of Israel say, hey, can we make you king? And he responds and says, no, no I'm not going to do that. And if the verses stopped there... The verses continue. The Word of God reveals what's going on in Gideon's heart, I think. So in some sense, Gideon starts asking for some things. He says, I will not be king, but, you know, while I'm here, can I grab the spoils? If you're using, like, language of a king, it would say, can I have some taxes for what I've done for you? Oh, then also there's the gold. Let me, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll gladly give you the gold. Okay, listen, what about the jewelry? Okay, give it, we'll take the jewelry as well. And then there are the garments. But notice what the author says, the kind of garments worn by the kings of Midian. And then the camels itself that were belonging to the kings, uh, camels of the Midianites, their ornaments are taken. Now, 
What Gideon is doing is gathering all these spoils, and then he does something really kind of weird and interesting. What he does is he creates something. He builds an ephod. Now, in those times, an ephod was something that the priest, the Levitical priest of that time, the wore. It was a significant piece of um, um, equipment that they wore around as part of their worship and response to God. But here in this passage, Gideon does something really fascinating. There's a couple of questions we need to ask as we study this. Why is he making another one? Isn't there one already that exists? And what's he doing with this now? Well, Gideon takes it and he moves it around and he creates something. And this is the storyline of Judges that you'll hear over and over again. There's no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in this moment, what you're seeing is Gideon himself is not saying, oh, I won't be king, but my actions speak something different. And he starts shifting where worship should have been in another place called Shiloh in the Old Testament. That's where the Ark of the Covenant most probably was. And that's where already an ephod is. An ephod wasn't meant to be an object of worship. It was a priestly garment. Gideon takes that and now he shifts it and makes it into something that becomes an object of worship. This is why the language of the Bible says it became a snare, a trap to the family. And not only that, to whole of Israel. The language is so strong is that they've sold themselves out, whoring after it. They've lost sight of who this idea of the ephod was. And the strong language is also they no longer are looking up. They're not looking to God, they're Yahweh, who had rescued them. They're looking forward to this ephod to worship and use as an object of worship. I mean, even the very design of the ephod was given by God many, a long time ago. It was from God who had designed it. Now they make this creative thing their object of worship rather than the one who had rescued them. What I find fascinating in this moment, though, is despite of their open rebellion, God chooses to give them rest for 40 years. It's a sign of God's grace. You know, uh, often in, in church ministry, you get to go to funerals. And when you go to a funeral, when that is uh, a f- someone who knows and loves Jesus, it's a wonderful thing to hear someone who's been a Christian for a long time of life. Uh, you know, when they get to their 90s and they've passed on, and there's this wonderful legacy and story of how they've kept the faith. There are the moments where I've been to services and funerals where there's someone talking about uh, the loved one who proclaimed to be a follower of Jesus. And then you know the story behind it all because you've met with their sons and daughters who share with you, that was not my dad, that was not my mum. Their life proclaimed something by their word, but their actions and life was totally different. In this moment, we're seeing almost a very drastic picture of someone, Gideon, who in some sense, using our term, didn't finish well. Gideon, in, in, in verses 29, is described with the words Jeroboam. Jeroboam, if you remember, was from the previous chapter. That's the name that his father gave, the others gave. This was to signify his kind of attachment to the Canaanite worship. The author is making a point here. Gideon's now slipping back into the things that he knew, things that he was used to. He's now synchronizing all the kind of the old religion with the new religion kind of language, kind of putting it into the Israelite religion. 
Here's a man who now goes back and lives his own home. And see the line? What happens in his good old life? He has 77 sons. That's a lot of wives. Not only that, he decides to have a concubine. And out of the concubine comes Imbelic, who we'll meet soon. Gideon lives a good old age, is what the author says. In other words, when the authors are using that kind of language, they say, hey, Gideon enjoyed all the spoils of life. He said he didn't want to be a king, but his actions and all of his life said he was king. And the fruit of that is in verse 34. People of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies. You keep reading, it says, They did not show steadfast love, the family of Gideon, Jeroboam. The author is making a point here. They had actually forgotten two big covenants or promises. They had forgotten their covenant with God and now abandoned it. Not only that, they forgot about their covenant with this Gideon, this guy who had rescued them. The, the idea of that word covenant is a very famous word in the Old Testament is the word chesed. The steadfast love, it's covenant love. That's what the author uses here. It's saying there is a covenant that's broken, but not only that, it's a greater, bigger covenant broken between Israel and, its, uh, and their God. Yet God is the one who keeps the covenant. God is the one who's gracious with them. Friends, Gideon's life is a reminder to you and I when the source of power shifts to ourselves, when we forget God ourselves, when our lives now become a bit like, oh, it's all talk, but never shown in the way that we live, we'll start losing focus. And our success is based on ourselves. Our success is based on our own abilities. You know, it's, a, it's one thing to declare that you believe God is king, and he's king of your, all of your life, but it's another thing to display that in your life. So it's one thing to say, I believe in God, but does our lives also display the same thing? That God is king. I mean, the name that Gideon gives uh, to his son in Mabilek, the concubine's son, typifies the reality of what I think is going on in Gideon's heart. And Mabilek means, Melek is father, or my father is king. Gideon might have said with word service, I do not want to be king. I will not be king. But it seems that the fruit of his actions show otherwise. And that means for you and I, do what we, say, what we say about God and who God is in our life, does that to be displayed in the way that we live? That means we need to ask, who is king? Is it me or you? It's one thing to know God as king through, you know, you might say, oh, well, I know God is king because, you know, I read the Bible, I go to church, I do all these things. And it's one thing to proclaim that God is king just intellectually, but does it grip your heart to the point that it reshapes all of life. See, in Gideon, what we see is he was failing to live out what he knew to be true. He was failing to live out to know to out what he knew to be true. In many ways, he started to be like his people. He forgot. In many ways, aren't we all tempted to do that? I mean, moments of seasons of great success and victory, whether if it's spiritual or vocational, maybe in our own family, there's a success going on and, you know, God has given that to you, but that success goes to our head and eventually to our heart. And what we end up doing is we put our guard down. 
the guard goes down, whether we mean it or not, we'll say, who needs God? I've got this. I'm in control. Maybe we end up looking to ourselves or to others to get our glory. Friends, God is our ruler and rescuer. And for those of us who know him, it is a wonderful reminder that our security and significance is not found in what people say or the things around us. Our significance and security comes from him. You know, in those moments when we speak about the things of God, do we just speak about those things or does our life display that too? I mean, imagine for a moment if you kind of fast forward to, to the cross and, and the empty tomb and, and if Jesus is the Lord of your heart and if that's true and you believe that and you say that with your mouth. If Jesus rocked up to your workplace tomorrow, on your work site, at your home, would what you say and do display the truth that Jesus is the Lord of your heart? Time and time again, even in our modern history, we've seen men and women drop the ball and fail. There are moments when we hold pastors and leaders or spiritual leaders up in high regard and they fall or fail. See, those moments, we should, not, we should be very careful that we don't become arrogant and shake our head and go, look, they've done it again. We should be cautious and grieve but also be reminded of the battle that is real. So it's one thing to say, Jesus is the king of your life, but does it display it in our lifestyle? We should be careful that we put people up to such a high pedestal and, and they get all the glory when remembering it's God who's put them in that place. A few years back, Beck and I had the privilege to go to New York and we did some training with a church there called Redeemer. Redeemer is a Presbyterian church it was led by a guy called Timothy Keller. Timothy Keller is a very famous author and preacher. And if you know me well enough, you know that at some point I'll talk about Timothy Keller. Here it is. So Timothy Keller was uh, leading one of our discussions or one of our classes. There was this moment, right? This is before he comes in. And it's the time that says on the schedule, Timothy Keller preaching. I'm sitting there with my friends. And you can feel it in the air in the room. Everyone's like, Timothy Keller's coming into the room. And there are some of us with our books ready to get autographed. Not me, somebody else, okay? We're all excited. Timothy Keller is about to walk in the room. Now, one of the girls there, she's a wonderful girl. She's a New Yorker. So if you meet a New Yorker, they're very blunt. They get along really well with Aussies. She turns around. She must have felt in the room. She said, all right, Tim's going to come in in a minute. Just going to let you know. Don't be weird. And we all just went, what? She's like... I don't know who you see Tim Keller as on YouTube and the books that you read. Don't be weird. Don't ask for a selfie. If you came and asked me for a selfie, I think you're weird. Don't be weird. Tim is Tim. He's just a man. It was a powerful reminder to you, all of us there. I felt like she was speaking to me. That God sometimes elevates and sets people in place for his purposes. But when they forget who they are and who God is... They can lose vision and sight of what God placed them to be. It's a reminder to you and I, if you are in any kind of church leadership in this church, be careful that when success happens and God blesses it and grows it, remember you and I are not invincible. 
be careful that we don't become like Gideon and we forget. And maybe if you have been placed in leadership in your workplace, at home, wherever God has placed you and you're seeing fruit happening, remember to give the glory to Him because He's put you in that place. And if you want to know what a leadership model looks like when you're motivated by yourself and for your own glory, let's meet our friend Amibelech. In Judges chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, Nebelek, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shesem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shesem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or the one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Now remember who Nebelek is. He's the son of Gideon. But he's the son of the concubine, and his name that is given is, my father is king. And in some sense, what Mabilek is doing is saying, well, I want the right. Give me the right to be king. I see myself as the heir apparent. Look at my name. That's what it means. And so he pursues it, and he begins a campaign by firstly rallying as many family members as he could. But in this moment, one of the clear things we see, Mabilek does not go and seek God at all at any point. In some sense, there's actually no interaction between him and God. God is mentioned later on, and we'll see how God is mentioned. Now, one of the commentators describes him as the son from hell. I think it's a confronting theme because what we see is this displayed in his life. Other people talk him as an anti-judge. That's the kind of theological term that they use. In other words, kind of putting it in our terms, if there was a judge school in the time of Israel and they were kind of tying up on what judges to follow and what kind of... This is, they're like, they'll say, this is the judge you definitely don't follow. This is the guy. He's the anti. He's really bad news. This is a man who was so consumed by one goal. He wants to be king and he will do whatever he can to get that. Even to the point that he will kill his own family to get that status. And Judges 9 is purposely, confrontingly ugly for us to wake ourselves up. This is what happens when it's self-motivated and it's not God-driven. Because see, if this man truly wanted to be a king, there were some clarifications he needed to remember, particularly if he called as someone who believed in God or Yahweh. It seems that he doesn't as much, but if he believes that he wants to be the king of Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 and 20, it says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, although he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he be acquired for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book of the copy of the law, proved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and they shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord your God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is a statement that God had already given and said this is what a king of Israel should look like. 
if you're going to stall someone, firstly, he needs to be chosen by God. Secondly, not only that, this king must learn to fear the Lord your God. And this guy is definitely not chosen by God. Secondly, he does not seem to fear God at all. Rather, he wants to be God himself. He wants to be the king. And then we have these confronting words in Judges 9 as he's pursuing his own members to kill them. One of his brothers steps up and gives this story in Judges 9, verses 7 to 21. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shesim, that God may listen to you. The trees one went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. The olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which God's men I wanted and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go whole sway over the trees? The tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine and cheers that, that cheers God and men and go whole sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come, take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Amimelech's brother hears about this. He knows his number is up, so he goes and proclaims something. A few years ago, there was a great movie called Matrix. I don't know if you guys watched it. It was one of my favorite movies. And for those of you who are young, this is before Marvel's. The, the special effects in it is amazing. You should check it out. There's a character by the name of Neo. He's the main hero. And there's this person called the Oracle who kind of oversees the whole thing, and it's a weird kind of uh, figure. He's interacting with the oracle and he asks the question, what does he want? That's the main enemy. The oracle responds, what do all men with power want? More power. What we're seeing displayed here is a man who wants more power and he will do anything that he can to get it. I mean, in this moment, this brother goes up to the mountain and it's actually quite significant, the mountain that he goes to, because it's the actual mountain that the Israelites, as they were entering the Canaanite region, they would have had the blessings read over them. In this moment, this man goes up to the mountain and has, has curses and a warning. He says to them, hey, this king that you're about to install has no desire for promoting any kind of good faith and integrity. You'll see that in verses 16 and 19. He says, hey, this king that you're going to install, guess what? He will devour you. And not only that, he'll cause each of you to devour each other. And if you are the people of God, you're not meant to live like that. Verses 20 to 21 and 46 to 47. And so he plays out this illustration of using a fig tree and the olive tree. Uh, the idea is the fig tree and olive tree and these trees are cultivated. They're not out of control. But there's this thorny bush that's wild and dangerous. It can provide shelter, but it's unpredictable. And the verse 15 says that this thorny bush is willing to take the kingship. Yeah, give it, I'll take it. It's mine, I'll take it. And it says to him, but if you don't follow me, there's going to be a threat and you'll, there's a command. And Jotham uses this as an illustration to say, this is what you're signing up for if you give the kingship to this Amimbelech. And he says to him, hey, he might come along and say, in good faith, it's kind of this uh, language of, hey, what you're doing is actually quite opposite. In verses 22 to 57, 
we have the reality of this fable played out. When the author starts in verse chapter 9, verse 22, and Mebelech ruled over Israel three years, it's a reminder to both us and the audience who are reading it at that time to say, hey, this king has a short reign in that. Straight away, a Mebelech will only have three years. It's a reminder that God is in control. This is the subtle way of the author saying God is in control. Mibelech will end. His reign will end. And throughout his life, his whole life is filled with betrayal, battle, slaughter, with one focus, to become the king. He's so drunk with power that he will not stop. And anything that stands in the way he will try to destroy. In these moments is when we read these kind of things, we sometimes go, where is God? Why is God so solemn? Why isn't God so involved? But here's the thing, God is involved. Because at the end of the day, Mimbelech is not actually fighting those people. He's actually fighting against God. The God of the universe who is your war at. They may seem that evil is running rampant, both in Judges 9 Verse 23 and 57, we're reminded that God is involved. Verse 23, God sent an evil spirit between Amabelech and the leaders of Shesem. The leaders of Shesem dealt terrorously with Amabelech. Then God also made all the evil of the men of Shesem return on their heads. Upon them then came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. God is not silent. God is involved. God actually uses or allows evil itself to use evil to discipline evil. And this means that it's showing God's power and sovereignty that he's not sort of kind of tainted by it. He's, he's using it for his own purposes. It's hard for you and I to comprehend that God will allow this. But what he's doing is he's saying evil will not reign and justice will come and justice comes swiftly from Abelech and it's, so, it's swift. In Judges 9 verse 23 as God sends the evil spirit both on the leaders to, to get rid of Imabilek. And then you have these confronting words that come in 52 to 57. And Imabilek came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Imabilek's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword, kill me, lest they say, Woman, kill me. This young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Amimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Amimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. Upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. In the movie The Lord of the Rings, there's this scene in the first one when the Razgul, they're kind of the really bad evil guys. There's this battle scene and they grab one person and they laugh. This particular character says, Fool, no man can kill me. And they get injured. Next you know, the woman takes the mask off and kills the Razgul and says, I am no man. There's this confronting picture of a man who's so captivated by power that God humbles him by using a woman to kill him, which would have not been a good storyline for his history. And his heart is to kill himself rather than be known that he was in, fatally injured by a woman. But see, in Scripture now, it's recorded for eternity that he was humbled by a woman. 
and he had to kill himself. Friends, it's tough reading. In those moments when you feel like hell itself is invading this world, you know, we've seen that in our history from World War I to World War II's and the Vietnam War and in recent times with the invasion of ISIS and others and we have these moments and we think, God, where are you? How are you letting this evil continue? What we're seeing displayed, friends, in those moments when mankind and evil comes up to the surface is the reality of mankind's heart. That is to be desire of King and God of the universe. And Judges displays that for us. But it's also a reminder to you and I that we serve a holy God. And we're no different from Gideon. We too are prone, wanting to forget God and kind of take the fame. And we kind of forget about what God has done for us. And not only that, it's a reminder to you and I that we have to be very careful that we do not test a holy God. He is still holy. He is still righteous. And evil cannot reign. The Apostle Paul later on in Romans says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by the unrighteous suppress the truth. We are reminded in the story of Judges, in the story of the Bible, that God is God and He's still holy and righteous, and evil does have a timeline. And in the next chapter in Judges, we see a God who is ever so gracious. In Judges 10, it says, After Mimbelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola and son of Pua, the son of Dodo, unfortunate name, a man of Isha, and he lived of Shemar in the hill of country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried at Shemir, and then another judge raises. And the question we have to ask as we read those verses, who is God trying to rescue Israel from? There's no Midianites mentioned. There's no Canaanites mentioned. Tola, I think, is rescuing them from themselves. Not from a foreign oppressor, from their own sin and their own consequences. You know what the greatest problem that we all have ultimately comes from you and me. Often we talk about needing rescuing from those outside things, but at the heart of it, it's inside of us. Gideon's failure is a reminder to you and I we do need a better king. Mimbelech's actions are a reminder that we too are prone to do everything in our own strategies and strength for our own gain. But I'm so thankful to God for his mercy. I'm so thankful to God both to his mercy to Israel that he chooses to save them through a judge rather than destroy them just as he chooses to save you and me in Jesus Christ. He sends his one and only Son the one who's the rightful king who reigns forever, has always existed, comes and enters in this world, not born in a palace, but in a, a stable. Rather than having royalty and jewelry and so on around him in humble beginnings, rather than sitting on a throne where he should have purple robes, the time that they give him a purple robe is as he's on the way to the cross. The only crown they put on him is not gold, but crown of thorns piercing his brow. And they cover him and mock him with a robe. And he goes quietly like a lamb to slaughter. Yet because of his sacrifice for you and me, for Gideon, For all of us in this church building, 
God's wrath is satisfied. And now as a resurrected king, our object of worship is not some object, but our resurrected king of kings and the Lord of lords. And for those of us who put our trust in him, guess what? Our significance is not based on what we do. Our significance is knowing that we are known by the creator of the universe through his son. And we are then called to know him more and more every day. And then the resurrection of Jesus is a reminder in those moments when you watch the news, when you watch evil going around us in our, in our own very area, it's a reminder that evil does have a timeline. Our king will return and evil will end finally. But until then, you and I are called into this evil world not to hide away but to show and proclaim this truth. Not for our own success, for our own fame and glory, but for the fame of Jesus. That's why we are called to pray against evil. That's why we are singing about his kingdom come, his will be done. That's what that means. But unlike the men of old in the Old Testament, his spirit comes and lives in us and then we are able to, with the power of the spirit and pull on the full armor of God to go and fight the battle that God has called us through the power of his spirit. And Jesus' resurrection is a wonderful reminder that the world is also on notice, that there is a judgment day coming. There is a judgment day coming, and you and I are called to go and be, bear witness about this. So friends, as we wrap up, what power are you resting in, you or your own ability? Do you talk more about yourself and what you've done, or do you talk about what Christ has done in you? And if you don't know Jesus... We want you to know him and love him because he took your place on that cross. And thirdly, as you serve, wherever context that might be, whose strategies are you using to do your work? Is it God's strategies or yours alone? I'm very thankful for the whole counsel of God in the Bible because in Hebrews 11 we have this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mounds of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness, became mighty uh, in war, put foreign armies to flight. The Bible is littered with people like you and me who have dropped the ball. And that is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of Christ. That we can come to him with our brokenness and put our faith in him. Because he is a good God, a gracious God.